Mark chapter 14 is where we find ourselves. I'd like you to put some sort of marker in Mark chapter 14, and then please go to Genesis chapter 3. We will read first from Genesis chapter 3, and then we'll be in Mark chapter 14. Mark 14 in Genesis 3, first in Genesis 3. Let's pray. Lord, we are in need of you today. We're in need of your presence, more of it in our lives, more of your presence in our community. We're in need of more of your power, more of your miracle-working, life-saving power in our lives, and in our community. And we would confess today that we are in need of being obedient to you, of being in a place, Lord, where you could use us at such a time as this, when there's so much going on that would baffle the mind and break the heart. Lord, we need you. We need you to guide and direct us, and we need you to manifest the victory that you won on Calvary. We're asking that you, through our lives, bring the power of the cross onto this coastline. And that the battle of the will that you won in the Garden of Gethsemane would be manifest in our lives. When the flesh is weak, we would walk according to the Spirit. When the body is weary, we would look to your strength and your comfort. So speak to us today and begin a good work in us. Thank you that you'll be faithful to complete what you begin. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're starting Genesis 3, as I said. And the context here is the fall of man. Man was created by God. He was placed in the garden to have a relationship with God, to have an intimate relationship with God. We're told that Adam walked in the cool of the day with the Lord. And that the Lord told man, don't sin. And that when man sinned, there would be consequences. The consequence of sin is that death entered into the world. But there was also the tempter, the deceiver, the father of lies, Satan, there in the garden. And though man handed out consequences, I'm, excuse me, though God handed consequences to man for his sin, God would also dole out consequences or judgment upon the tempter, the evil one, Satan, for his role in the fall of man. And we see that very clearly in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the devil here. When he says between you and the woman, he means between uh, the devil and the offspring of Eve. Mankind and between your seed and her seed, her seed being the promise of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, speaking of Jesus Christ, he says to Satan, He shall crush you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. There is the first messianic prophecy given in the Bible, the first prophecy about Jesus Christ, and the prophecy is very clear no confusion here that Jesus will have victory over the enemy. That the enemy, though he may bruise the heel of Messiah, so to speak, by his working in the world, Messiah would crush the head of Satan. There was a declaration of war made on the enemy in Genesis chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden. Now we go from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. And as we saw the battle declared in the Garden of Eden, we will now see a flashpoint or a pivotal moment in the victory of the battle in the Garden of Gethsemane. Pick up where we last left off in Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And they, meaning Jesus and the disciples, Mark 14, 32, came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he was saying, Abba, 
Father, all things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he came and found the disciples sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking rest? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Here we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, not only the betrayal of Jesus Christ taking place, but the battle for the lives of men and women being decided. There is here in our text pictured the battle of the wills. Jesus wrestling, struggling with the reality of the cross and coming to the place where he would yield his will to the will of the Father, where he would submit himself to be the sacrifice for mankind and would willingly from this point go directly to the cross. This is where defeat was declared upon the enemy. Because just as the enemy would tempt Jesus earlier in his ministry in the garden, he was tempt- in the wilderness, he was tempting Jesus here in the garden to skip the cross. And this is where the head of the enemy is crushed and the victory of Jesus Christ, the battle of the wills, is won. I want you to watch this movie clip from The Passion of the Christ. It shows it powerfully. Mommy back. 
man The Lord said of the Messiah that he would crush the head of the evil one. In the Garden of Gethsemane is where a crushing of many sorts took place. You see, Gethsemane means oil press. It means oil press. And it is a garden of olive trees. Those of you that are going to Israel with us this winter, we will go there. And we'll see olive trees that have been there, some claim, since the time of Christ. Huge olive trees. And we'll see there some presses. And in order to extract the oil from olives, the olives had to be crushed. They would be placed upon a large stone, and another large stone would be rolled on top of it. And as the olives were crushed, the oil was extracted. Now the oil is that in the olive which was most precious to the people in the Middle East. They had the most value. It was most useful to them. It was only in, and it is only in the crushing of the olive that the precious oil is brought forth. The Garden of Gethsemane, the place of crushing, the olive press. It's a place where many crushings took place. First of all, the enemy was crushed because Jesus Christ yielded himself and said to the Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. If there's any way to skip the cross, Father, let's do it. But to save humanity, your will be done. And at that moment, the will of Jesus in his humanity was crushed as it was submitted to God. And then Jesus would go to the cross and therefore be crushed to accomplish the redemption of man. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, speaking of Jesus, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. The Lord was pleased to crush the Messiah if he would render himself as a guilt offering, if he would accomplish the forgiveness of mankind. And in a few hours after the Garden of Gethsemane that we just read about and we just saw vividly portrayed, after a few hours, the Lord would be beaten, bruised, crushed, mocked, spit upon, broken on his way to the cross and upon the cross. And that crushing began here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as the olive is crushed under the weight of a stone, Jesus would be crushed under the weight of my sin. Jesus Christ would be crushed upon the cross under the weight of my sin. And it would please the Lord to crush him if he would offer himself to pay the price for the sins of the world. Understand that what Jesus feared in the Garden of Gethsemane was not the physical aspect of the cross. Certainly in his humanity, he looked at the physical suffering that would come his way. But as the God-man, as God in the flesh, holy God and holy man, what distressed him, and it says in our text that he was deeply grieved, that his soul was distressed to the point of death, what distressed him was the spiritual reality of the cross. 
that upon the cross, God placed all the burden of the sin of all of humanity upon Jesus. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God who made Him, that is Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin. Not a sinner, mind you, that would be theologically incorrect. But to become sin, that He might pay the price for our sin on the cross, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That is to say, when you are saved, when you come to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. I understand Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Forgive me and save me. At that moment, you're declared righteous. It means not guilty and perfect in the eyes of God because you are placed in Christ. And now God only sees you through the lens of His Son who lived the perfect life because we couldn't. We're reminded that God treated Jesus Christ upon the cross as if He had lived my rotten life so that God could treat me in heaven as if I had lived His Son's perfect life. And it was this wrath of God that He would bear that brought about this distress that brought about this agony, that brought about the spiritual battle because the last thing that Satan wants is people to be forgiven. Understand, Satan wants you in your guilt. Satan wants you feeling burdened. He wants you feeling condemned. He wants you feeling dirty and ashamed and to blame. God wants to remove from you the blame and the guilt and the burden, and the condemnation, and the shame, and the dirtiness. And so there was a battle in the garden. Satan wanting mankind to be condemned. Jesus Christ wanting mankind to be redeemed. And Jesus won the victory. But in the realization of what it would be like to bear the sins of the world, he understood that there would come a break in communion with the Father. Remember, Jesus was in perfect communion with the Father. He said, I say only what the Father tells me to say in the Gospels. I do only what I see the Father doing. And here in our text, he would cry out, Abba, Father. No Jew before this time ever called the God of the Bible Abba. It's the equivalent of saying Daddy, Papa. They were too reverent for that. Jesus was able to say, Abba, Daddy. Papa, Father, as he addressed him in the garden. But once he hit the cross and the sins of the world were placed upon him, it would now be Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? From Papa to my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As the weight of the sins of the world were placed upon him and there came that momentary, the duration of the cross, separation between the Son and the Father. So terrifying was the prospect to the Messiah that we read in verse 35. He began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He began to ask the Father, Jesus Christ, who I would assume knew how to pray perfectly, began to ask the Father, if it is possible, let this hour, meaning the hour of his suffering upon the cross and the spiritual weight of the sins placed upon him, let this hour pass from me. Again in verse 36, He prayed and said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. If possible, remove this cup from me. The cup being the cup of the wrath of God. What Jesus says here is, Father, if there is any other way to save Brit, if there is any other way to save Daniel, if there's any other way to save Steve, if there's any other way to save Wendy, whatever your name is, put it in there. If there is any other way for them to be saved and forgiven and brought to heaven, then let's take it because the reality of bearing the weight of the sins of the world is too much to comprehend. We know that in the garden, Jesus experienced a physical condition called hematidrosis. It's when you're under such severe stress that the blood seeps out of the pores of your skin. He prayed three times to the Father. If there is any other way to save humanity, let's take it. And the prayer of surrender, the prayer of submission, the prayer of resolve was, but Father, you know best. Your will be done. Two things that you must know in light of what Jesus prayed and struggled with in the Garden of Gethsemane. You must know that there is an untellable weight to sin. And you must know that the cross is the only way to be saved. 
that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. If sin was not so weighty, if it was not so destructive in its nature, if sin was not so horrible, why would Jesus be in such agony in the garden? Why experiencing the hematidrosis and the battle and the weight of it? You see, we don't really understand the weightiness of sin. We play games with these things. We think, oh, it's no big deal, and God will turn a blind eye, and everybody does it, and you know, whatever. God sees sin very differently. We will never understand till we see him face to face the way that God sees sin. We make too light of it as humanity, and I would suggest as a culture in America. We make far too light of it. It's so severe in the eyes of God that he gave his only begotten son to die for our sin. So we need to take God's word that sin is horrible that it's destructive. Everybody thinks that they'll beat the odds. Everyone thinks they'll be the one who's okay. History is proven. It's not okay. God hates sin because sin kills people, because sin destroys. There's a weightiness to it. We need to pray for understanding. Second thing we must understand is that very clearly, the cross is the only way to salvation. Jesus Christ dying upon the cross is the only way to be forgiven. Us coming to him and saying, Jesus, I understand that you died for me. Please forgive me according to that. Is the only way to have the sin problem removed and therefore entry into eternal life. If there is any other way, then God is sick and twisted and perverse and evil. Because his son prayed three times, if there is any other way for these to be saved, let's do that. If there were any other way, don't you think the Father would have answered the Son? The cross is the only way to be saved. Christian, you must aggressively defend the uniqueness of the cross of Jesus Christ. You must aggressively defend the gospel. You must aggressively preach the gospel. It is the only way that men can be saved. The name of Jesus is the only name by which men and women can be saved. It's proven in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there's any other way, then the God of the Bible is a sick and twisted God, and we ought to evacuate this building immediately. You understand? The battle that took place in the Garden of Gethsemane was the battle of the will. Jesus in his humanity hoping there was another way, and yet saying, nevertheless, not my will be done, but what thou wilt, he said to the Father. The temptation that was in the garden was to skip the cross. That was the temptation. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan? The last temptation that Satan confronted Jesus with was this. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he said to him, all these kingdoms have been given to me, and I could give them to whomever I wish. This is Satan speaking to Jesus. Remember, the Bible says that Satan is the God of this world, lowercase g, because man has submitted himself and the world to Satan. And so Satan takes control. Satan said, and Jesus did not dispute, all the kingdoms of this world have been given to me. I could give them to whomever I wish. Jesus, you came to redeem the world. You came to save the world. You bow down to me and I will give you the kingdoms. In other words, the idea is skip the cross. Don't do this cross thing. Never. Who can bear the weight of the sins of the world? Skip the cross. I will simply give you the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus replied and said, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And Jesus was victorious over that temptation that day. It's the same temptation here in the garden. And he struggled under the weight of it and fell to his knees. By the way, the Garden of Gethsemane is where Christians get the tradition of praying on their knees fell to his knees and then to his face and three times asked if there was any other way. The battle of the wills was won in the garden by Jesus Christ and it was won for you and I. The moment that he yielded to the Father, he won the victory on our behalf. And on the cross, the power of sin was broken. And so because he had victory in the garden and because of the victory of the cross, you and I can now live victorious lives. If you don't believe that, we're reading different Bibles. 
You and I can now live victorious lives. Romans chapter 6 says that sin no longer has power over us. And we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And we should no longer present our members as members of unrighteousness, but present ourselves to God as instruments for righteousness. We're dead to sin, alive to God. And so, though man blew it in the Garden of Eden and death entered in, Jesus Christ was victorious in the Garden of Gethsemane and we now can experience life. And because he was victorious there, when your own Garden of Gethsemane comes, you can follow the example of Jesus. What was the example? What did he deal? What did he do? He yielded to the Word of God. He yielded to the will of God. Though it may have seemed there could have been a better way, though it may have seemed there might have been a different way, he said, God, nevertheless, your way. And there is what it takes in the garden of decision. Satan will do everything that he can do to confuse you, to confound you, to bring you to the point of despair. Your job, Christian, is to go the way of Jesus Christ, to go the way of God's way. In the moment of decision, in the heat of the battle, don't you experience battles in your life like I do? Do you experience gardens of Gethsemane where it feels like the weight of the world is on your shoulders? And the decision before you is so heavy and you're hoping that there's an easier way out? I have horrible news for you and wonderful news for you. The way out is not the easy way out. The way out is a way of submission to God. It is a way of the cross. Jesus said, if anybody wants to come after me, he must pick up his cross daily and deny himself. The way out is a way of the cross, the way of submission to God's word. The wonderful news is that God is always right. Can I get an amen? God is always right. We often think we're right. Listen to me. If you are in contradiction with the word of God, you are wrong. The Word of God is older than you are. The Word of God has proven itself. It has stood every scrutiny, every criticism, every investigation. God is absolutely correct in everything He says. And when the Garden of Gethsemane comes your way, the battle of the wills, the way to go is God's way, God's Word, God's timing. Because ultimately, the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen? And the Lord has already won the battle in the garden and upon the cross. Don't you remember Israel? Israel was in slavery to Egypt for some 400 years, and they were ready to come out. And God raised up Mo, and Mo went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And Mo went back to Pharaoh and said, please let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And Mo went back one more time and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, okay, go. And finally, the children of Israel, by the blood of the Lamb, and the power of God were delivered from Egypt. The moment they begin to walk in freedom, the enemy, Pharaoh, changes mind. The moment they begin to walk in freedom, we are told in the book of Exodus that Pharaoh began to pursue them with all his army. Christian, if you live in defeat, the enemy doesn't have to worry about you. You're not a threat to his kingdom, and you're not an asset to the kingdom of God. The moment you begin to live a victorious life, the moment you begin to walk in freedom from sin and freedom from shame and freedom from guilt, then expect all the forces of hell to come against you because Satan wants you in those things and, deli and Jesus delivered you from those things. We're told in Colossians chapter 1 that when somebody is saved, they are transferred from the kingdom or from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so Pharaoh said, no, I don't want to let him go. And Pharaoh began to pursue Israel and Israel found themselves up against the Red Sea. It was a Red Sea in front of him, it was a Red Sea to the right of him, it was a Red Sea to the left of him. There was no place to go, and Pharaoh was pursuing after them. What happened? Moses steps in in Exodus chapter 14, and it says in Exodus 14, 13, but Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, whom, the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Wait a minute, there it is. Are you afraid today? Are you having trouble walking in victory? 
You feel so bound up in things. The promise of the Bible is, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And that's what Jesus Christ was doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was fighting for us when we were as yet silent. He was fighting on our, ha- on our behalf. Same thing in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter, chapter 20, we got King Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat was one of the good kings. Everything was chill in the kingdom. He's there just enjoying the people until he hears about the enemy coming. And the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Tittites and the Termites and the flashlights and all these different ites came against Israel. And he began to inquire the Lord, Lord, what should we do? And the Lord sent a prophet. And the prophet said, you need not fight this battle. The Lord will fight this battle. You just send those who sing praises to the Lord in holy attire down into the battlefield. And as they begin to sing praises to me, you watch what I'll do. And the next morning, the worship team went down into the battlefield. They began to sing praises to the Lord as all the armies are gathered there in front of them. Declare the high praises of God. And we're told in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 that the Lord set an ambush for the enemy and that they turned on one another and killed each other until there was not one left. Stand by. Remain steady. Stand firm. And you will see the victory of the Lord. James chapter 4 verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you give in to the devil, he will not leave you. You resist the devil and he will flee from you. David said the same thing about Goliath to the Israel. He said, the Lord will fight the battle this day. The battle belongs to the Lord, and we've already seen that the Lord is victorious in the garden and upon the cross. So the victory is yours, Christian. All you need to do is walk in it. Now, even though the battle is won, we experience the effects of the battle, don't we? We live in the midst of the battle. We have here in the text before us two postures that we might be called to at different times in the midst of battle. Two postures that we might be called to at different times in the midst of battle. Number one is seen in verse 32. And they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. He said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. In other words, there's a battle happening in the Garden of Gethsemane tonight, boys. Satan wants mankind to be lost. I'm here to redeem mankind. You stay put while I go and fight the battle. Sit here while I go and pray. It's just like if we came up on some sort of dangerous situation and we needed to rush in to save lives and we had our children with us. I would turn to my four-year-old and I would say, sit here and do not move. I am going into the battle. Do not move. Right? Because the safest place for him is right there. As his father, I know that. Sit here. Do not move. I am rushing into the battle. The temptation for the four-year-old is to run around and to look and to get in a whole world of trouble, isn't it? And isn't that the temptation for you and I? Anybody ever had to wait on the Lord? Oh, just me? Anybody ever have to wait on the Lord? Has anybody ever heard the Lord say, sit here? (laughs) Stay, boy. Down, boy. Stay. Oh, my gosh. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. We hate to wait. By nature of who we are, especially Americans, we're into instant gratification, you know. We hate to wait. You pull up someplace to get some food and there's a line, we're out of here, let's go somewhere else. We hate that, we go nutso over that. We don't like to wait. Waiting is work. We don't like to wait. It's work for us, it's difficult, but there is a work that is accomplished through waiting. That is to say, if God has you waiting, Christian, it's because he is working on your behalf, Christian. If God has told you sit here, it's because he is praying. When the disciples in Matthew chapter 14 were out on the lake and their lives were threatened, where was Jesus? He was on the mountaintop praying. In the midst of the battle, he said, sit here. While he went into the depth of the battle, the depth of the garden, he began to pray. We're told in the book of Hebrews that the Lord Jesus Christ ever lives to make intercession for you and I, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father pleading our case. And so when the Lord says, now wait, it's because he's working. He's working in circumstances. He's working in your heart. 
He wants to do a work through you. It's not that he's too busy for you. It's that there's a work to be done. There may be a crushing that has to take place that the precious oil might flow forth from your life. You understand, sometimes we've got to be broken. And sometimes it is that waiting process that breaks us. It is the weight of waiting that brings a crushing as of an olive. And then that precious, useful, valuable oil comes forth from our lives. God has you waiting. It's because he's working and he's faithful. Psalm 27, verses 11 through 14. David, the psalmist, was in danger once again. We should nickname him Danger Boy. And in the midst of danger, he says in Psalm 27, 11 through 14, Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my enemies. For false witnesses have arisen against me, and such breathe out violence. There's a perfect picture of Satan. He is our enemy. Weren't we taught in the Lord's Prayer to pray and deliver us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Do not deliver me over the desire of my enemies, for false witnesses have arisen against me. The enemy is a liar. He's a father of lies. He's been a liar from the beginning, the Bible says. From such as breathe out violence. Jesus said in John 10.10 10, that the enemy comes to kill and steal and destroy. And so the psalmist says, I would have despaired. Loose paraphrase, I would have freaked out. I would have freaked out unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Listen to what he says. I would have freaked out. I would have come to my wit's ends. I would have blown it. I would have spazzed out. I would have panicked unless I had believed. Unless he had faith that he would see the goodness of the Lord. He wasn't seeing it yet. It's in future tense. He didn't understand how the Lord would bring good out of it. He didn't understand how the Lord could possibly heal his heart or defeat his enemies or take care of the situation. He simply said, I would be freaking out if I didn't believe that God was faithful and I'd see his goodness. And then because he does believe, he's able to say, wait for the Lord, be strong, take courage. Wait for the Lord. God is faithful. If he's got you waiting in an instant, even though the battle rages and you feel like you just need to do something, it's because God is working. Wait on the Lord. Because there's a promise in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. Amen? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. The promise of God is that if he tells you to stay put or to do something or to remain faithful, he's working all the while that you are waiting. And he is bringing to your life new strength and freshness and power. And he's fulfilling his promises. He told those disciples, just like we would tell a little kid, stay here while I go pray. Is there anything the Lord has told you to do that you need to be obedient to? Is there anything that he's spoken in your life recently of stay here? Continue steadfastly in that. Be faithful in that. Don't give up in that persevere in that. If God has spoken that to you, please know that he is working and that the victory will be manifest in your life if you just stay in that place of obedience. The second stance that we may be asked to take in battle is portrayed to us in verses 33 and 34. Leaving the disciples behind now, it says in Mark 14, 33, and he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Now he took them a little further into the garden, a little further into the battleground. And he said, now, now that you've gone deeper, remain here and watch. The other guys were just supposed to stay, but they were to watch. What does that mean? It's explained for us clearly in verse 37. And Jesus came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? 
Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What Peter and James and John were called to do when the battle was raging around them was to pray. They were called a little deeper into the battlefield, a little further into the midst of it. They were more near to Jesus in proximity than the others were. And the command given to them was to pray. Because though the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. The spirit is the spiritual man that wants to do what's right. The born again man or woman within you knows what is right and has a desire to please God. The flesh is that sinful nature. How many times do you say in a spiritual moment of inspiration, I'm going to do thus and so. And then as soon as your flesh wearies, oh, I should have done thus and so. I'm going to do this and that, or I'll never do this and that again. I'm going to stand firm. And then when the flesh is weak, oh, never say never. In the midst of that battle, the call sometimes in your life is to watch and to pray. It is to engage in prayer. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says that we have weapons given to us that are divinely powerful, meaning they have power with God. They are powerful for tearing down strongholds. That is every speculation that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God. Every lofty speculation, every false idea and ideology that would exalt itself against the truth of God, we are able to tear it down through prayer. That is our divinely powerful weapon. Christians, do you see the battle being waged in our community? Do you see what's going on in the lives of our young people? We have a weapon given to us which is divinely powerful to destroy every idea that Satan would raise up in their hearts and minds against the true knowledge of God who created them and loves them and wants to save them. And the weapon by which we wage that war is prayer. Has God issued to you an invitation to go deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane? to go eat deeper into the battle of wills? Do you understand that there is a battle raging in our community with regards to the will of young people? Satan is wanting to rip people off. Jesus Christ is wanting to give them life. We have been invited to engage. We have been invited to engage. Mind you, the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. The victory is his. The power is his. But we have been invited to participate. And with regards to our community and what we want to see happen with the youth, it says in the book of James, we have not because we ask not. And so if we look around and we see that our youth are ravaged and we're wondering why and we're wanting to see change and we are not praying fervently with one another, we have not because we ask not. And the Lord has beckoned us into the depth of the battle, into the Garden of Gethsemane, into the midst of it and said, pray, do battle. I will get the victory, but here is your post. He has stationed us in this community, and there is a command upon us to pray. What do you do Tuesdays at 6 p.m.? There's a prayer meeting here where we do battle for the souls of young men and women. What do you do Friday nights at 7 p.m.? There's a prayer meeting here where we do battle for the souls of men and women. What do you do Sunday mornings at 7.30, an hour before first service? There's a prayer meeting here where we beg God to move powerfully in our community and save people and transform lives and save marriages and remove kids from the brink of disaster. What do you do? I believe that as a church, the Lord has invited us into the Garden of Gethsemane and to the battlefield of the wheels, and I believe that he wants to give us the victory, but we need to engage. Peter refused to engage Three times the Lord came to him and said, Peter, pray. Peter refused to engage. Three times the Lord said, pray. Peter refused to engage. Three times he denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, I believe that God is speaking to us and I place myself in the midst of the congregation. I speak with you, not to you. This is the word of the Lord to us. I believe he is calling us to the battle for the youth of this community and to not heed that battle call 
to not heed that enlistment will be as disastrous in our lives as it was in the life of Peter. The biggest hindrance to the spiritual victory of the Garden of Gethsemane being manifest in our midst is spiritual laziness. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Very humbling. God's word here to us saying, go to the ant and gain wisdom from the ant. It's going to call us a sluggard here. Some translations say lazy bones. I like to think lazy bum. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. How humbling is that? The Lord is saying to us today, you need to learn something. Go watch an ant. Which having no chief or officer or ruler, we do have a chief and an officer and a ruler. His name is Christ Jesus. Prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Apply that spiritually to our lives. I believe the Lord is calling us deeper into the garden. Will you respond? Again, in Proverbs 24, same idea. It says, I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. Can anybody attest to the fact that when we become spiritual lazy, spiritually lazy, we are headed for practical disaster? And I would say that beyond our individual lives on behalf of our community, when we are spiritually lazy, there's disaster in our community. Look at the promise of God in Hebrews chapter 2. It's on PowerPoint. You can just look. But Hebrews chapter 2. starting in verse 14. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood, simply saying you and I are made out of flesh and blood. He himself, that is Jesus Christ, likewise, are, likewise also partook of the same. Jesus draped himself in humanity. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The Bible promises that Jesus Christ has rendered the devil powerless. The only power that he has is that which we give him. If we hand ourselves or our families or our communities over to him, he's all too happy to take them. If we can't claim them back in the name of Jesus Christ and walk in the victory and claim the victory, God is all too happy to manifest the victory. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to satisfy the wrath of God. Verse 18, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane, but the victory was won. And so when you are tempted in the battle of the wills for the control of your life, for the battle of obedience, Jesus Christ sympathizes with you and he is able to come to your aid in the moment of temptation. And we finish with Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet is without sin, Jesus Christ. And the result, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus Christ knows what it's like to suffer in this world. He knows what every temptation is like and he has the victory. He is without sin and he went to the cross to win the victory for you and I and we are now invited when we receive him as our Lord and Savior. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Save me. At that moment, we are invited into the throne of grace to receive help in the time of need and I'm just telling you, nobody can help you like Jesus can help you. Nobody else has ever gone to the cross for you. Nobody else has all authority in heaven and on earth.
but Jesus Christ. He is our Savior and our help in a time of need. He is our rock and our fortress and our strong tower. And I suggest community. I suggest Coastline that we run to our rock at this time of need and we engage in the battle and we see the victory. Amen? Amen? Lord, thank you that the battle is yours. Forgive us for when we've been like Peter, sleeping in the garden. Lord, I pray that you would come and awaken your people. I ask, Lord, that you would wake us up to the reality of the battle, the lives that have been ravaged and lost. We want to say collectively no more of that in our community, God. But you're calling us to fight. You're calling us to pray. You're calling us to intercede. Issue the call today. Lord, would you raise up fervent men and women from this congregation at this moment, please? Would you raise up men and women, soldiers of Jesus Christ, ready to do battle on behalf of the lives of others? Walking in victory and claiming your victory and holding your victory out over this place. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have. Help us to walk in victory. Help us to walk in power. Thank you that you won the battle of the wills. We submit our wills to you and say, Lord, in this church, on this coastline, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we begin to reflect upon the cross and worship now, if you have an issue that you need to pray about, this is a place, this is a time. If there's a battle going on for your will, this is a place to surrender. Grab somebody around you. Care if you don't know them. The prayer team will be up here. Maybe it's just someone next to you. Grab them, say, there's a battle going on in my life. There's a battle going on for my will. There's a battle for my obedience. Pray for me. And then pray for someone else that you know in the community who is struggling, who Satan is trying to rip off, steal from, destroy. Ask for prayer for yourself and then pray for somebody else. Everybody today. Get prayed for and pray for somebody as we worship and do business with the Lord.